1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Um, it's been a long time since we've done one of these, but I'm really happy to uh, have a new guest joining us today um he's a great tennis fan and a great follower on twitter uh and uh, extremely knowledgeable about the game and uh you know great guest i think a lot of you guys will enjoy it tremendously um his name is xavier liverman uh xavier would you like to tell us more about yourself and uh you know kind of how you got into tennis and just feel free to introduce in any way you like
1: yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I guess in my day job, um, I'm a professor at E.C. Santa Cruz um, in uh, critical race and ethnic studies. Um, I also uh, work in film and digital media as well as um, feminist studies. So those are kind of the intersections of my scholarship. Um, I grew up in Vallejo, California. I don't know how many people might be familiar, but it's a blue collar kind of working class town outside of San Francisco and Oakland. And a lot of the people ended up there, like my family, uh, because of the Navy, um, because they were in the military and there was a naval shipyard very close by. And I guess if I talk about my history as a tennis fan, I got into tennis because tennis honestly was a way for me to experience the world very differently than how a lot of folks experience the world when you come from kind of a more blue collar working class town um and it gave me this sense of internationalism it gave me this sense of cosmopolitanism it gave me this sense of i can see the world i can be in paris one week and london the next and monte carlo the next and um i i really was uh the international and global diversity of the sport and the sense of it offering me something that was beyond the kind of limited worldview that i was growing up in is what initially got me watching the sport to be to be really honest and um i um i started watching during the 80s and so my first favorite players on the men's side was stefan edberg on the men's side and gabriella sabatini on the women's side um and so that's kind of uh you know Graf was playing, uh, you know, Everett and Aver Tlova were toward the end of their careers. Um, but you know, the people I gravitated towards those two because I think I liked their flair. They both had a bit of a flair with which they played. Um, even though personality-wise they were a bit different, right? Edberg was much more reserved. Um and um, Sabatini was a bit more, you know, she had a bit more flair to herself on the court, you know, when she would play. And I think that those personalities have been ones that I have tended to be attracted to subsequently, right, um, as I've continued to, to watch tennis. um, I, um you know moved to Pete Sampras once Edberg retired um because I liked that serve and volley style of game but I also liked that sense of reserve that that Pete had on the court emotionally um and then um the Williams sisters were sort of appearing and you know they had that flair right you know to them um and you know I think there was also for me as a as a as a Black kid growing up in blue collar, there was a lot about the Williams' story that obviously resonated with me um, and felt like something I could identify with. Um, so, you know, I've stan them since that time. Um, um, and um, that's really just been my journey. I kind of, uh, when Sampras retired, I initially was a Federer fan. Um, I think there was, but when the doll came around, there was just... There was something about the audacity of Nadal that that just was attractive to me. I was like, this guy actually thinks he can beat Federer, you know. And and it was during a time when so many people you felt like when you watched um, Federer play, there were so many people who you felt like lost the match before they even walked out there, you know. Um, and there was just something about even if he didn't always win, you know, there was just something about that audacity that like I'm here, I'm competing. Um, I think I'm as good as you. And I think I can maybe beat you if I play my best. And so that has been kind of where my fandom has shifted. Um, And I would say that Nadal is very different from the kinds of men's players that I've tended to um, stand as far as their games are concerned. So I'm not sure if that's just my own evolution and maturity. Um, And so I look to the next gen now and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out who I'm, I'm moving my energies to but I have a lot of appreciation for um you know in that next gen the Berrettinis the the Alias themes, and um and folks like that and then in that very next generation the Sinner and Alcaraz have really caught my eye um a lot and then on the women's side um I really really like Layla Fernandez <laughs> I just there's yeah. something about her feistiness and her fight that she brings to the court and um, um that I identify with a lot. Um and uh, you know, a little chip on the shoulder, right? You know, that that I that I really, really appreciate. Um, but I have a lot of women players that I that I like. So um, you know, that's kind of been my evolution um as far as a, a tennis fan. And I think that, you know, I'll just always say that for me, um, I'm always looking for this sport to be more accessible and more inclusive. Um, um, And I think that's where the sport can do a little bit more work. It's come a long way, but I think that's, you know, as I look forward to the future, I hope to see more diverse folks playing from different countries, you know, um, and and different backgrounds.
2: That's a really fascinating journey. You kind of just took us through, you know, your entire evolution as a fan and just really fascinating to hear how you, you know, connect with tennis, you know, because I kind of want to start there with, uh, you know, the connection between, you know, living in kind of a place with with um, blue, blue collar workers and then how you kind of took that to uh, talk about what tennis means to you and uh, that it being very international and you said you want, you really like the um, like how much more inclusive and accessible, you know, how much of a scope tennis has to improve in those areas? You know, what are some of those things that you think, you know, uh, tennis can do a better job of in terms of being accessible to its fans and more inclusive?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I think on the fan side, um, I would argue that a lot of the fan accounts, um, whether they're on YouTube or Twitter, that are sort of being um, consistently docked you know, for copyright violations. I think that needs to end. I think one of two things needs to happen. Either the various different tournaments and the tours need to invest in better highlight reels and better social media. Um, but if failing to do that, then I think let the fans produce the content. The fans are more than happy to do it. Um, and why give them strikes and pull down their videos? And I, it, it just feels like a very fan unfriendly um, approach, um, to the contemporary age. And it, and it seems like it's, uh, the, the uh, example of the sport sort of, you know, um, missing an opportunity to expand itself. Um, so I just think on that kind of marketing and promotion and so much more can be done. Right. Um, I also think that, um, on the developmental end, I guess, when we're talking, I I'll speak about the U S situation in the USTA. Um, because I do think that for certain countries, they just don't have the money and the infrastructure to, to kind of develop tennis. Um, But I think we could think about some interesting funding revenues that could get coaches, you know, tournaments, things in, in those areas. But I just think that my sense is that um, a lot of tennis seems stuck in time and keeps going back to the same well over and over again, And I think that um, identifying, I think different, being more creative about how you identify the athletic talent um, that's available to play tennis, I think is really, really important. So I've always thought that, I've always thought that you could take some guys that probably aren't going to do the NBA thing and turn them into tennis players and they would be great, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that, learning the tennis strokes are easy, right? But there's been an example of, you know, guys that played the NBA that were halfway decent tennis players. And you just wonder, you know, if they had kept playing tennis, you know, um, because I'm just imagining how, how mobile they would be, right? I find in general that a lot of those guys that play basketball are a lot more mobile than a lot of the big guys in tennis. And I thought, hmm, you know, can you imagine like a, you know a Kobe with like movement and like tennis strokes, right like i mean you you could imagine that would be a dynamic you know charismatic player you know that I think would attract a lot of attention um to the sport, and so I just think there are things like that I think we can be more creative about where we're drawing um our players from, and I think we can be more creative about. I you know, I, my biggest complaint about the US tennis establishment has been this, um, particularly on the men's side, this obsessive focus on a big serve and a big forehand. Um, mm-hmm. without a lot of sense of like, you know, point construction. And <laughs> you know, there's there's a backhand that's needed, right? right. Um there's, no, there's you is. know, yeah, there's defense that needs to be played, right? Okay. Um, and so I um there's been a promotion of a particular style of play that I think has meant that certain players don't get the opportunities because their games don't really, which is why I'm loving to see someone like Nakashima and, and Brooksby, um, you know, come up because um, because I'm seeing people who clearly have a different style of play um, than, than we've traditionally seen from American players. So I'm, I'm hoping that's portending well. You know, for for just the sense of opening up like what that style looks like. And I think about Layla Fernandez as well, how she was told she was too small, right? Um, and too petite. And she, you know, and and that's another example of like, well, why, why make that decision when we've seen uh, everyone from Diego Schwartzman to, you know, Riley Opelka, John Isner able, yeah. you know, Evil Karlovich able to play this sport. It clearly can take... Uh, a a variety of body sizes and and playing styles and I just think that cultivating a variety of that um is is for the best so I'm I'm very much about like let's look in some different places for players right you know not always you know kind of suburban you know tennis clubs right for for everything right um let's yeah, so I think that those are the things that I would say in a Western context, like a US, UK type place. And then I do think that I do wonder if there could be some kind of small transference, whether it's um, ITF funds or Olympic funds, you know, to some of the non-Western countries that don't have much of a tennis yes. infrastructure. Right. Um, in order to kind of build up the diversity of the people outside the US who are going to be playing the sports. So those are just very quick ideas that I have. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get too much on a soapbox, but no, um... I mean,
0: like I couldn't agree more with everything you said there. I think um I particularly agree about how the, the men's side in America is kind of stuck in the past. Like if you look at the women's side, obviously the Williams sisters have been phenomenally successful. You know, Sloan Stevens is one of major um Madison Keys has made a major final and you have up and comers like Coco Gauff but and they um and they play very well they're really well rounded players but if you look at the american players on the men's side since Agassi who have been highly ranked they're all kind of the same archetype like you said big serve decent forehand but bad backhand can't move can't return and as we know in this era that kind of player can't be successful anymore maybe they would have been like 20 30 years ago but yeah, I, I completely agree that um, we need to think differently. And, um, and also like these ideas have been brilliant. I think um when we've interacted on Twitter, I've always thought that your ideas have been very well thought out. And that has definitely been translating to this podcast as well. Um, I think your ideas should definitely be talked about more.
1: Yeah, and and to be fair, I'm not the first person to come up with these ideas. You know, like I I I know some of that conversation was happening from, from of all people, John McEnroe, who I don't, you know, right. who I see as as sort of like the stalwart of like American tennis establishment. Yeah. You articulated
0: um, it way better than him,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, um, but I know he said a few things about trying to get you know, tennis into other kinds of communities within the U S but I don't know whether he puts his money where his mouth is, so to speak. Right. Like, I don't know what that means for the kinds of player development that they're doing, um, with their Academy, you know, um, in New York city and who they're reaching, you know, through that, but. Yeah. I,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I like what you said there about, uh, um, you know, the, you kind of look at the next cohort of Americans in terms of, you know, your Brooks bees and Nakashima and quarters of the world. And, you know, there's always this stat that's been floating around recently that there's 14 American men in the top 100 in the ATP rankings. And, you know, and just in terms of sheer quantity, um, you know, quality is yet to be determined. And obviously we're still seeing how these guys, you know, progress, but definitely, you know, about 20 years ago, there was about eight of them in the top 100, and, you know, those eight are, you know, the very famous ones that are, you know, well talked about, like your Sampras and Agassi. And then, of course, you had Roddick and you had, you know, folks like Blake and Mike Russell and, you know, Chang and yeah, I think and Marty Todd Martin, as well.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Todd Martin as well. And, you know, later it came around Marty Fish. But, you know, this is sort of around 20 years ago where, you know, we were kind of transitioning from the Sampras and Agassi era of dominance uh, just before, like, kind of where Roger Federer came along in 2003 in terms of winning majors. So that's kind of the period where we find ourselves in right now in men's tennis where, you know, these players are going to be, hopefully, you know, let's just give Djokovic another five years just so we're safe. (laughs) (laughs) But hopefully they're going to have most of their careers, you know, without three of the best tennis players that, that have ever played the game. So looking at that kind of, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, like how far American men go. You know, to in terms of winning a slam or even winning master Series. I mean, obviously we had Riley Opelka get to the finals of a Masters 1000, and then we just had Taylor Fritz produce a result that's been, I think, long time coming because he's, I've always believed in terms of his potential that he has. But in terms of winning Grand Slams and getting into the top ten, it's still we're still quite a far way off, I think, um, just as it stands
0: right now. Yeah, yeah I, and I'm. Oh, sorry. Oh no, no, sorry. You go ahead.
1: No, and I just was going to say, you know, I don't want to make this overly Americo-centric. I mean, I think of I think of Berrettini as another player who, in a non-Big Three era, would probably have a couple slams as well already, right? And I think that he's a potential really um, big beneficiary of their retirement. If he can particularly keep the edge he seems to have on grass against his peers, right. you know, um, now that may not be an edge he can keep. I definitely think Medvedev is coming on grass, But but um, but, you know, if he can keep that edge, you know, like I see him as a Wimbledon champion, um, if he can do it in the next few years, you know, with, you know, with the obvious expected decline physically of of the big three, um, you know, I think he could snag himself a Wimbledon, you know, in in the next few years, you know, before the next generation kind of develops. But he he strikes me as a kind of prototype of a player that in many ways, the big three era just kind of ended their chances, right? Because he doesn't have that great of a backhand, you know, his, his movement can sometimes be, I mean, I think he moves well given all things, but you know, his movement can be a little bit of a challenge at times, Uh, doesn't play, doesn't return particularly well. Right. And so he's also someone that I that I think if I plopped him up and put him in the U S would be kind of like in that American prototype, but he has a bit more variety you know, uh, to his game. And um, that slice has really developed into a bit of a weapon. Um, but I'm, I'm just thinking there are some other players that I think also will benefit potentially from from that as well, you know?
2: No, I, I like that observation a lot because I used to joke with uh, Owen a few podcasts ago. I'm like, if we just put Milos Roundnich, you know, in the 90s or somewhere else in yeah. a different era. And, you know, Baratini kind of strikes me in that kind of a mold of like the round Roundniches and the Sangas of the world. Where it's you know quite I think a little bit of a level up from these other American guys that we were talking about with the big serve and big forehand, but like you said, a little bit more variety, a little bit more flair and finesse and point construction in their games. Yeah, uh, but that, still somewhat limited in their movement and their backhands.
0: Yeah, I mean I mean this era has skewed the way we look at things so much because then, like you said in another era we'd be looking at Raonic as like maybe a three-time Wimbledon champion, and now we watch him play and we go, this guy can't return, he can't move. Like what's up with that? When you know a mere 20 years ago, this guy's winning multiple majors. Um, and I think on the other side of the coin, when the big three are gone, we're going to see one of these Americans in that mold go on to win multiple majors, and then we're going to compare that to Andy Murray and be like, How unfair is this? You know, Murray was way better of a player, and yet they ended up with essentially the same winnings. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you have three giants at the same time. I think, in a way, it's great because it's made us look at areas of players' games and and expect them to be more well-rounded. So I think when that doesn't put unreasonable pressure on players, it's going to produce better players. Yeah.
1: Oh, no, definitely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good time to to transition to Indian Wells, which just took place, you know, in October, strangely enough, uh, post-US Open, obviously two and a half years since we last had this event. And, you know, just watching it kind of unfold Uh, on the outskirts you know I live pretty close I'm lucky I live actually pretty close to the event so I was able to go for a couple of days um, for the semifinals and the final weekend so that was nice and I must say it was very easy to get in because there was not very many people you know um, you know uh, attending this event in person and I think there's a lot of reasons for that it's you know we're still in the midst of a pandemic and obviously the you know tournament did a good job you know requiring vaccinations for uh, you know all of the spectators and you know even me- members of the media um everyone except for the players but uh' <laughs> to get into that but uh but nonetheless it was it was great to be on the grounds, you know because there wasn't quite as much uh you know chaos and lines and in terms of uh entrance uh you know getting in, but just being able to sit courtside and kind of watch the tennis and just see kind of all the carnage that occurred on the men's side as a result of, you know, Djokovic not being there and Rafa and Roger and, you know, absences of some other big name players like team. And, you know, on the women's side, of course, uh, Ash Barty Naomi Osaka, Sabalenka they were not all in the draw, but I'm curious from your guys' perspective, you know, watching at home, you know, what did you kind of make of the event and, you know, is this going to be some sort of a trend in terms of when the big three aren't there, we're going to see carnage because, Obviously, we have seen the likes of, uh, you know, Medvedev and Tsitsipas and, you know, uh, Zverev and all all the other next-gen guys kind of step it up in Masters 1000s now and, you know, win some of these things. Uh, But it's still a whole different new field when they're having to carry the event. And, you know, even just from a sponsor and media perspective, you know, them being the face of the event and being the new stars. So that kind of just throws a lot into the mix. So, yeah, I'm just curious to hear both of your perspectives.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought Medvedev had developed enough on hard courts um, to beca- become, like, the overwhelming favorite for events like this. And I think he kind of has. But I I watched his match against Dimitrov, like, the entire thing. And for the second half, I was just going, what the hell is happening? Um, that was one of the most bizarre things <laughs> I've seen this year. What? Um there's a complete implosion. And Dimitrov played extremely well. Um, I mean, the courts were really slow, and he was... You know, carving it up with his slice but it was just this completely bizarre turn of events when medvedev kind of somehow simultaneously lost his serve and started making errors and rallies and so that was one of the most you know violent turnarounds you're ever going to see and i thought dimitrov's run to the semis was um one of the best stories of the event um played better than i've seen from him in a long time so um what did you think Xavier?
1: Yeah, I mean, someone, I don't know if y'all saw that tweet, but someone said it looked like Medvedev got bored with his own game, <laughs> you know? Like he just, you know, um there was a way that Dimitrov was making him work that he just was like, I I can't even do this anymore. Um right. but yeah, I um I guess like speaking to first of all, I I found myself enjoying the tournament far more than I thought I would. And I, I yeah. think the overall impression of the tournament. I, I was expecting to be a bit more jaded, you know, by it, but I actually got caught up in the joy of it. I, I don't, I don't know quite how to explain that. Um, but I, so I do think that we are going to see some instability um, on the men's side in these Masters 1000 events moving forward. Um, but I don't but I also wonder how much of this is also, like, I'm thinking about, like, what Cam Norrie's real ranking is versus the the COVID rankings, right? And when you think about that, you know, was he really the number 26 player in the world? If, we, if we're if we really looking at his, you know, um, results, right? He was kind of solidly top 15, right? And so yeah. I, I don't know, I think that, I think that puts, you know, puts it in a bit of a different perspective. Um, not that I pegged him to win, especially after he got destroyed by Rude and San Diego. Um, but um, but I I do think that we're gonna see um some instability. I still like Medvedev on a fast hardcore um and quick conditions. Um I um yeah I I really thought that these conditions would be one that plus would have taken advantage of to win um mm-hmm. but I do wonder how much the health issues that he was having I mean he was clearly fighting a cold you know um, was yeah coughing visibly yeah.
2: after the yeah post matches.
1: And- so I, I do wonder if that, you know, I'm just wondering, like, a fully fit and healthy plus does he get through that match, you know, um, right. and then go on to, win, you know, to kind of win the tournament. So I do think that we're going to see some instability on on the men's side, but I'm not sure it's going to be so volatile because I do think that there's a couple of packs of guys that seem to be separating themselves from the rest of the field.
2: Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it, actually, you know, because, you know, definitely Medvedev has proven himself on the faster conditions, uh, on on the faster hardcore, just where he can get a few more, you know, cheap points on his first serve and, you know, use that. Because obviously he's always, you know, even in the Dimitrov match, he was winning all the points under five shots, but you saw that as soon as he was having to work and kind of generate a little bit more offense on his own, especially off the slices and Dimitrov, you know, cleverly using the slice and kind of maneuvering him around the court and then just, um, you know, having a really good sort of day with his patience and his forehand. And that just really kind of took over. And it was really nice to see kind of Grigor finding that form again, because he is kind of part of that other batch of, uh, you know, players, you know, kind of, I don't really like to call them the the lost generation because I think that term is used,
0: overused a lot. First edition, Uh, next gen, maybe.
2: Yeah, you know, maybe kind of the, the, the poster boys in the mid 2010s let's just put it that way (laughs) and so for him to kind of uh, you know come out of this end of the season and actually feeling fresh because I do think there was a little bit of an element of some of these guys just having played a lot I mean you could just tell from um, just the way Medvedev checked out in that match but also you know Sitsipas kind of struggling with the conditions and the cold and some of these guys have played over 55-60 matches already on the year and it's been a long stretch um, you know post-US Open and then obviously a lot of all six of those guys in the top 10, they also took part in the Labor Cup. And, you know, it's a quick turnaround. And all of a sudden, you know, they're expected to win everything. So from that standpoint, I I do think we are going to see a little bit more instability. Because if we do look at the two Masters 1000s that haven't gone these guys' way when the big three aren't around, it was Miami, which is kind of in the middle of the Australian Open clay season doesn't sort of like lead into any one particular area of the calendar. And then this one is Indian Wells, where it's sort of anyway, we kind of have some quirky results in October, November. So, you know, obviously, and you know, most famously four years ago when we saw like a Jack Sock versus Philip Krainovich final, which was, the, this is the most carnage we've seen probably since that Masters 1000, I, I would say. So from that standpoint, I think it's a good chance for some of the, some of the guys in the um, sort of in the top uh, 15 to 30 of the rankings to kind of, you know, look, take a look at this and kind of go, okay, this is kind of my chance to, you know, maybe, you know, add some more big finals and big semifinals to my name because there's just going to be opportunities. And, you know, we saw, uh, you know, Cam Nori take advantage of that because, you know, you're absolutely right when you say his his real ranking was a lot higher than number 26, uh, you know, in in the rank, in the number 26 ranked, I believe, and number 21 seeded. But, you know, he's now on the verge of qualifying for Turin. So it's, it's, it's so great to see a guy like him, you know, actually show what, how good of a tennis player he is, because I think a lot has been made about, you know, he's maximizing his talent he's extremely consistent and he's, you know, doing the absolute most that he has with his talent. But I think that's actually kind of looking at it a little bit from a different lens when you could say like, actually, he's a pretty good, actually he's a pretty decent tennis player. And we saw, you know, how smart of a guy he is and how well he takes, uh, how well, how how high his tennis IQ is. And I think that's really stuck out to me, you know, watching him court sight is just the, first of all, the difference in between the two strokes, you know, just seeing how flat that backhand is and how he uses that to kind of maneuver his opponent around the court and then set up a, a forehand, which is, you know, kind of your more traditional lefty topspin, um, you know, forehand that he likes to, it's it's a little bit more conventional, I would say the closest, uh, you know, lefty kind of a Berdasco, Ramos-Vinola's, you know, Rafa Nadal, with for talking of extreme topspin, but really just the way he, you know, places the ball and uses his, you know, finds his opponent's strength and just really strength and avoids that and really goes after the weakness. It's It was great to see him just, you know, capitalize on those opportunities, especially in the last three rounds when he blitz Schwartzman. And, you know, I watched the match against Dimitrov and it was just a total bad matchup for Grigor in a way that I think, A lot of people were quite taken aback by how easy actually that win was. And then just having to figure it all out in the final against a completely different style of opponent who thrived in these slow conditions that week in Nicholas and Bazilashvili. So it was kind of great just to kind of see on one perspective, you hear all the people talking about the carnage, but then also you can look at it from a glass half full uh, from that perspective and be like, actually, this is a great opportunity for a lot of players to really step up and shine.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, we also shouldn't underestimate, you know, the the pressures that were on the, you know, the semifinalists and the finalists, you know, once they got to that stage. And I think handling that and coming through that, I think is another, you know, feather that we should give Cameron Nori right? I mean, you know, that's, that's not, you know, that's not an easy, I think, thing to kind of deal with, you know, a sense of expectations when a draw kind of opens up and the people that you thought, you would need to play to win aren't there right um yeah. and um you know we've seen people freeze in those moments and and not be able to to bring their best so I think that you know um I definitely felt like I learned something about Cameron Nori that I didn't know about him and I think that was the interesting aspect of the men's tournament for me mm-hmm. um notwithstanding there were a couple of really great matches here and there and you know there was the fritz rejuvenation there's the the dimitrov um uh rejuvenation which we all celebrate because i don't think there's anyone who actually doesn't have anything but warm feelings for no. dimitrov right um right <laughs> and, um um but i do think it was interesting to just see how when it got to those you know moments at the end of the day the way that cameron nori held held sorry held conducted himself right like he he held his nerve he you know he put together I think a really good mental and strategic you know set of matches there
2: right and then then also um you know I was hearing afterwards that he had actually lost his pair of shoes just like Andy Murray had so he was having to go the same day and buy a new pair of shoes and he put them on the locker instead of inside the locker which I just don't understand why
1: I I don't understand that either
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah um And and I totally agree with you, Xavier, about the pressure. I think um, in this position, there are a couple different types of pressure as well. Like, not only is he at this stage for the first time, but the next time he gets an opportunity like this, it might be way in the future, because next year, Djokovic is going to be playing these events, Nadal probably will be, team should be back. And those are three people who as good as Nori is, he's not going to be expected to beat. So like this was really impressive, but he still might have to wait a while to get more chances like this. So the fact that he like took that moment, understood what was happening and seized it was really impressive.
1: Yeah. And I just would add, like, if we look at his grand slam results, we can maybe throw out the Alcaraz, but. Um, but you know, the, all of his losses were like to Nadal, right, and yeah. in Australia and at Roland Garros, and then to Federer at Wimbledon. It's just, you know, the guy wasn't really getting like we could see when those matchup problems would emerge in the Slams, right? And so I do think that I agree with you. You know, who who knows when this opportunity will will sort of presents itself for him again as far as the draw being a set of players that he can kind of like his chances against, you know?
0: Yeah. I, I actually didn't know how brutal his draws was, were this year. I mean, and you're totally right. Like he will have to wait, right. but in a couple of years, if, if that Nadal draw becomes, you know, with C T Foss draw, it's still going to be tough, right. but definitely more winnable.
1: So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Sorry.
0: No, no, go ahead. Sorry.
1: You, I think you were going to ask another question about that. I was thinking, should we say something about the women's? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was
0: going to say, um, on that note with the ACP sort of taking on that role with, um, you know, rather than having one or two overwhelming favorites, you have um, a bunch of players whose maybe base level is a little bit lower, but it's a much more competitive field on average. I think the ACP might sort of need to learn how to be the WTA a little bit more because the WTA has been having that, but with much better depth. Like, if you look at the two finals we got, there is really no comparison. The women's final was unbelievable. It was the best match of the tournament. Three sets of just outstanding play. You had these amazing rallies. Um, on a slow court, I think the tennis can suffer a lot if the players don't really know how to rally. And these, Bedosa and Azarenka knew how to rally. I think um, everyone probably remembers that set point in the first set, um, which was 28 shots. And by the end, um, I think Azarenka's legs were so heavy that Bedosa hit this backhand winner. And it was pretty central. It wasn't that close to the lines, but it was still a winner because the first 27 shots had been so attritional. Um, And we got a lot of points like that. There was another in the third set that Azarenka won to hold for four all. And just the depth on both sides and the angles were ridiculous. Ended with a backhand winner down the line. But yeah, we got we got great matches on the women's side. Azarenka played another really entertaining match against uh, Ostapenko, that she barely hung hung on to win. She was sort of under siege in that one from Ostapenko's power. Um, and yeah, I think I thought the women's tournament was more entertaining because we got close matches, we got high quality matches, and from first round to last as well.
2: Yeah, it was just anyway. great tennis all around. You know, I was there for the for the women's final, and it was hot. It was ninety plus degrees. Um, you know, and that's just, I was sweating like crazy, just watching it in the stadium for three hours, but uh, with the sun, like just beating all over, you know, the, the players and in their eyes and serving. And there was one side that had a little bit more shade than the other, but they were having to play in 105, and 510 degrees heat. And it's a, it was an interesting dynamic because you have Azarenka here, who's a two-time grand, who's a two-time Indian Wells champion. And she was trying to become the first woman to have won three of these things in the open era, which, um you know, I don't know how much, you know, she would have been aware or her team would have been aware, but definitely as the older you get, you know, she's not getting any younger in terms of just having opportunities to win some of these big titles. Obviously she had the resurgence in Cincinnati and the U S open last year. And, you know, she played, a, she played amazingly well this year. And I think she's played well in patches this year, but just kind of has had some injuries and some unfortunate, you know, mid tournament withdrawals and actually put together a pretty decent season. But Just without missing kind of the big win and big titles, and she was playing a player in Bedosa who I think is you know just really coming into her own in terms of just I was so impressed with her mentality and her ability to play in the clutch moments, Um, especially in the in the in the two tiebreakers, especially the one in the in the first set. Like Owen was talking about that twenty eight shot set point, I still can't get that quite out of my head because it was so great just watching it. Um, You know, happened at six five in the tiebreak and just many many other moments where. You know, you thought, okay, maybe, uh, you know, Azarenka has the upper hand sometimes in the baseline rallies, but then Bedosa, just the way, just the power and the way she was going after the ball in those moments and you know, just not reacting and just realizing that I have to do this in order to win the match. And just her weight of shot, you can really feel it on the court, I think, because of the slower surface. It gives just gives her that little extra time. And, you know, we've seen how much success she's had sort of on clay and she lost a tough Roland Garros quarterfinal to Zidane Shek And she's had some tough moments this year, like in quarantine in Australia for 21 days after, you know, being stuck on a plane with somebody who tested positive and then getting, receiving a you know, testing positive herself. That's kind of the worst luck you can ask for. And then as well, going to the Olympics and then retiring from a heat, heat stroke. And I think it was, you know, similar type of conditions in terms of temperature, but not the same kind of humidity. And I think those conditions, like having gone through that before and having gone through those adversities, I think that really shaped the way she's kind of developed the past few months just in terms of as a player and as a person and handling that adversity. And she's been really open about her depression and anxiety that she suffered as a, you know, junior and expectations coming through. And she's only 23 and I'm just so, you know, thrilled for her. And, uh, you know, I was gutted for Vika at the same time because it was such a, it was just one of those matches where you would just feel for, you know, whoever was losing and Vika, I thought her attitude was just excellent. You know, when she lost that first set, it would have been very easy to just kind of crumble and, you know, just, not, you know, just slowly, you know, still fight and give it your all, but just sort of just, you know, run out of gas or go away. And she didn't do that at all. And it was it was just impressive to see from a 32-year-old, because you, you probably would have guessed that, you know, maybe physically she would have been feeling it a little bit more, especially after the three, almost the two-and-a-half-hour epic that she had against Ostapenko. And then, you know, all of these things just kind of going against her in the big moments. But she hung in there. It was really one of those teachable moments, I think, for, like, parents and, you know, kids growing up and playing the game to, you know, sort of how to handle yourself in those uh, in those moments and sort of that relentlessness and never giving up and just all those cliches that we hear about, but it was just, you could feel it in the moment. And so I think just seeing that contrast between the two of them and just how gracious they were at the end and, you know, Vika, super gracious in defeat. And then, you know, Bedosa, you know, saying how much she looked up to her as a player. And just, you know, that's what you kind of want to see when you pass it on to the next generation. And, you know, it kind of just, all kind of goes back in full circle to what you were talking about, Xavier, in the beginning of just, you know, handing over the baton to the next generation and just seeing that, you know, how that contrast and how, you know, players emerge. I thought it was a great final just for tennis. And I think it really, really saved the final weekend in some sense, um, just in terms of intrigue. And there was quite a bit of crowd actually for that match. And then it slowly started to fade away just before the men's final. So that was, that was just, it was great to see that sort of court side, I guess.
1: I really want to touch on what you said about teachable moments because I think there were were plenty from both players. I was really, really impressed with the way Azarenka started that Mm -hmm. second set. You wouldn't have known that she lost a heartbreaking first set, the way she just came out pumping herself up, being like, I'm still in it you know, and I want to show my opponent that I'm still in it, right? Um, right? And I just thought that was such a great moment that kind of the way she managed and started that second set. Um, and and I thought to myself, wow, she's just really being a veteran out here. Like this is her experience, you know, like really, um, really, really showing through, which I think makes Badosa's ultimate victory all that more impressive because she had to kind of match even in her own way, right? in her own personality, um, that intensity that Vika was, was giving, right. Um, it reminded me of some of those vika Serena battles from the early, the early teens, right. Okay. Yes. With that, you know, with both of them kind of matching the intensity and really going at each other and leaving it all out there on the court, but having like, a a collegiality and warmth towards one another when it was all over.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and it's always so nice to see two players sort of be able to, um, like acknowledge each other warmly after a match and sort of like take in the shared products that they've produced, especially when it's a great match. I think um even though I get it when two players sort of have a cold handshake after one of them has just had a heartbreaking loss, it always like, it's a little sad to see because I think there is, it is possible to sort of take pride in this um like mutual effort and thing that you've put together. Um, and I think those two totally did that, which was great to see. And I think, um, I, I think was, also if we oh sorry, you have to
2: just to chime in a little bit on yeah. that. It was very interesting seeing kind of the way Ostapenko reacted. Right. <laughs> you know, after in the semifinals, just when you were saying cold handshake, that just yeah. came came to my head. And then just, you know, seeing the way it was with Bedosa, it was it couldn't <laughs> have been more yeah.
0: different. <laughs> Night and day, absolutely. Yeah. Um and I think Go um ahead. I'd love to talk about the end of the match as well, because I think um it really looks like Azarenka had it at um at four all. Right. She started defending insanely well. She was running everything down and at first I thought it wasn't really going to matter because she was getting back these balls that were like super short. Um like these desperate gets and I was thinking these are going to be easy putaways but she did it often enough that Fedosa actually started missing. And so she missed a couple putaways and Azarenka served for the match at 5-4 and it went to 30-love. And um and at 30-15 I actually tweeted um this game kind of feels destined to go to 30-40 because some matches are so competitive that I think this makes no logical sense, but I think they're just not really meant to end that straightforwardly. And so I kind of yeah. thought like there needs to be one more twist and there was, and Azarenka made four straight on four errors, and, um, and that made it five all and it went to a tie break and Bedosa made sure it was on her racket. She went for her shots and she was accurate and she made them, I think four winners in the tie break, if my memory is right. And that's, it's amazing to play like that in your first really big final. Um, I think everyone dreams of doing that, but very few can actually execute. So that was so impressive.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of feel that with uh, some of the older players as they get older, it just becomes a lot harder, I think, to close out big titles and big matches and really kind of feel the weight of what you're trying to accomplish. And even though you're so experienced and you've been there and you've done that so many times, I think it just it's just never easy doing it again and kind of just proving yourself that one more time and getting over the hump because you do get tight you do start to think about it a little bit more almost too much you almost know so much more than you know what you should in that moment just striking that balance between still being free and going for the for the shots um and having full conviction in them and then also just you know being a little tentative and a little bit a little bit unsure in those in those moments in the crunch and we've seen that quite a bit actually with a lot of the older players recently with on both the men's and women's side. And it's just interesting to see that as they get older, it just gets harder when actually you would, you know, you would think with all the experience, it would be almost automatic, but it's just, it's just not true, especially with all the greats.
0: Yeah. I I totally agree. That reminds me of something uh, Juan Jose said at the U S open where, when he said um, the players Djokovic was facing, um, Rune and Brooksby thought they were supposed to be on Ash and they didn't know anything. And that meant they played really well and they played fearlessly. But then you had a guy like Greek Spore in the second round and it wasn't necessarily that his game was worse, but he was old enough and experienced enough to know like he was not going to win that match. And as a result, it wasn't competitive at all. And it's not a direct comparison since Vika is so much more experienced, but I totally agree that sometimes when you know a lot, it can sort of complicate things like, oh, I could go for this backhand down the line, but it's low margin and it's a big point. And she has two serves coming up. And I think somehow, sometimes all those overlapping thoughts, um, even though they're like valid based on experience, um, those can be self-defeating sometimes. Yeah.
1: I think there's a double-edged sword to the experience, right? Like on the one hand, you know, you have the experience and you can use that to your advantage, but then you also know what it means, yeah. You know, you know what it means in a certain kind of way and how much it means. I remember um, Nabratilova doing an interview when she was trying to go for that record-breaking, you know, Wimbledon yeah. title. And I and I can't remember who she lost to. My memory is not. But I remember her afterwards saying, I just wanted it too much. Like, you know, it, I wanted it so much that I froze and I couldn't quite, you know, was um, it the one think,
2: against Conchito Martinez? I
1: think so. Yes, it was the yeah, Martinez was, one. Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. And yeah. I and I and I thought, wait, you're Martina, right? Like, you know, what do you mean you wanted it so much that you kind of. You know, couldn't quite produce your um, but I think that's the double edge. And I think that's what got to to Vika a a little bit there. Um, you know, when she was up 30 love. I think she was also like, wait, this is happening a little too easy, right? Yeah. You know, given yeah. given how tight the match had been, and maybe um I, I mean, I definitely think there was a falling back down to earth a little bit because she was playing so sky high. So, you know that happened but i also wonder if it just started to get in her head or oh my gosh i'm about to win this right and and how much it would mean to her to win it
0: right yeah. and and when that finish line comes into view it it affects the way everyone plays like it's it's sort of ironic that like um like nadal talks about it in his autobiography is like a fear of winning and, it, and it's ironic because like why would you be afraid of winning winning is what you're trying to do but when that finish line comes into view like you realize what you're about to do and you get you get scared and um yeah yeah, it's and it's tough to deal with and all this pressure yeah. is is different. Like Vika has been in these big finals and she's won them, but you know, like this is a different player, different time of year, different conditions and no one's immune to it. So
2: exactly. Uh, you know, the fear of winning is real. And if we just, you know, I you know, two players who brought us a lot of joy on the women's side during the US Open, Leila Fernandez and Emma Raducano. If we just kind of look at I, I actually I'll start with Leila since, you know, she was just going to be a crowd favorite, I think, everywhere she goes because just the way she was lighting up, even the Indian Wells crowd, you know, and in some of her early rounds because she did actually manage to back it up. I thought pretty nicely, you know, beating um, Elise Cornet, I think, in the first match, and then I think she, yeah, three sets it was against Pavli who was obviously not an easy opponent. She reached the French Open final and almost won the thing. So I think you know, coming through those through especially the three setter against chenkova and displaying kind of the same qualities of that grit and determination and that feistiness and at the same time just the flair she kind of has in her game as well uh you know it was just it was just great to see her just sort of back it up and you know continue her you know her style of playing and just be kind of comfortable with who she is now I think on the court I think she's really found her inner voice uh you know as a tennis player and just you know this the way she can orchestrate the crowd and the way she can you know play to the play the ball, I guess, and not the opponent. And I think that's, you know, quite a big lesson actually you can learn from from her in that in that sense because she's still sort of young and free and 19 years of age and still kind of riding the wave. And it was just, it was cool to see just her, her back it up. And it's not a really terrible loss to lose to Shelby Rogers, you know, seven, six in the third. Yeah. You know, especially, you know, Shelby is really comfortable in these conditions and just, you know, it was it was a close match and she'd beat an Nash party at the US open. So
0: yeah. And, and not only that, but this was in the round of 16 and Fernandez is seated yeah. 23rd. So she's still playing above her seating. Um, exactly. I, so I think even, even calling this an upset might be a little bit of a stretch. Like she's still getting really good results.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was really impressed with how she backed up her, her victory. Although my, my, I'm sorry, her, her run to the US open, um, but my sense is that I think she will do better on uh, I mean do as well on the slower surfaces as she does on the faster surfaces. And I don't think I can say the same for Radakanu yet. Yeah. Like her game feels very suited to faster surfaces like Wimbledon, like a fast hard court at the US Open. Um, and I'm sure she'll she'll get there, but I, I think it will take a little longer on the slower surfaces and on the clay you know um and I could be proven wrong like now I've said this; she'll probably win the French Open next year but <laughs> but the, but, the, but the point is that you know when I look at the way that she sort of constructs points and the sort of aggressive nature of her play um I wasn't that surprised that she you know struggled a bit there because those conditions I just don't think are very suitable for her for her game. And I think you also had that situation of like, because she was seated, she was playing someone who had already won a match and, you know, was a little hot and, you know, was doing yeah. well. Um, and I think that's always a difficult position to be in. I almost think she would have rather played a first round match, you know, um, yeah. against a lower ranked player who didn't have a victory yet. You know, I think that she would have um, liked to get that that little bit of experience as she could, Um but yeah, I I I was really impressed with Layla and kind of like with Tharaka Kanu thinking mm, this just doesn't really seem like this is really ever going to be her her place that she's going to you know there are people who've just struggled at Indian Wells and it just hasn't suited the conditions the you know just don't suit them in their game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, although I do think um this is also a pretty limited sample size. Like I think it mm-hmm. um with the pressure being so different and her being seated. It's a giant shift in pressure with what she dealt with at the US Open. And I think she also got, like you touched on, Xavier, a pretty nasty first round opponent in Sasnovich, who is a great returner, great retriever. And and with her game being so powerful, um, it's tough to be like low margin and powerful on such a slow court against a great defender. So I think um like in a year it could be totally different. Um, I think it's tough to draw big conclusions from this, but um, but I do agree from what we've seen, uh, she will like the faster surfaces better. Yeah. I think
2: the you know we have only just seen her play on grass and at the U.S. Open, and you know maybe San Jose, a couple of ITF here and there. But it's really just it's been on those faster, lower bouncing surfaces that just kind of just reward her first strike and her her aggression and just the the way she takes the ball early off both wings. It's just it's tough to execute that yeah. without also having practiced much. I think you know yeah. in between the U.S. Open and. Uh, you know, her whole life has just changed. It's almost like if you were to build a, you know, a pyramid or like a build a structure of like, you know, thirty levels. It's like she skipped the first twenty nine yeah. <laughs> and just won the U.S. Open, which was the yeah. big. Yeah. I mean, and it's like all those building blocks that were that are necessary to kind of build that foundation on the tour, she just hasn't, you know, hasn't done any of that yet. And it's just, you know, from winning a tour level match to, you know, winning on different surfaces to playing in different you know, against different styles of opponents. And I think we'll just learn and there's going to be a lot more, you know, losses like these, I think, you know, and that's, that's not a, you know, that's not a knock on her. It's just, you know, I think those losses are really key actually. They're really necessary in order to build her, her, um, her base as a, as a Mm -hmm. player and just what she is. And, you know, it could well be that Indian Wells just doesn't suit her, her game at all. Or, you know, the clay doesn't, you know, I remember, you know, for the first time this year, I watched Bianca and rescue on grass and it's like, man, this does not work. Yeah. (laughs) how is this going to work for her so this is just you know this could just be one of those things and and that's totally fine I mean and you look at it we look at great players you know on the men's side like Andy Murray you know he's never won Indian Wells or done particularly well there and he's not been fond of the conditions at all I think just one final but that's you know that's you know that's really it and that could be you know Raducanu and she's still only 18 and I think we we have to give her some time and she still doesn't quite have her coaching situation figured out yet which is probably just the key for her I think right now and then just getting more matches and being played on going on tour I think it's good that she's going and she's playing in some events you know later in this year I think she pulled out of Moscow which is happening this week but I think you know just at least getting that week-to-week tour experience uh, is going to be key for her and I think she's currently working on a trial basis with Esteban Kirill I don't know if I got that right but I think that's Johanna Conta's old coach so you know I do kind of and obviously there's been a lot of talk about her you know Firing uh, or not firing, but they were working on a you know temporary basis with uh, Andrew Richardson, and he doesn't really kind of have that tour pedigree experience that she's looking for. So it's just going to be interesting to see you know who does she surround herself with because it's very easy I think to also go after some of the bigger names. You know if you kind of look at for example Darren Cahill is is open and he's you know stopped working with Simona Simona Halep, and so you kind of would think oh that's you know maybe a decent opportunity and maybe that could work. You know with with a few, you know, trial bases here and there and then make it permanent. But actually she's, I think her parents said that like, it's, those coaches are actually really expensive and it's, it's it's pretty hard to get that, you know, to work long-term. So it'll just be interesting, I think, to see, you know, how she goes from here and figures it out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like um and and first of all, Owen, thank you for just reminding us we shouldn't take too much. We don't have a large sample size when it comes to Radakanu. And I right. think, you know, being careful about being too prescriptive about these things, I think is important. Um, but I I the other sense that I get with Radhakanu is um she definitely is fine with being a public figure, but I don't get this sense that she wants a superstar coach that's gonna be doing interviews right. all the time. And you 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 know that that I think there's something about about her that probably would need a different kind of personality on her coaching team. Now, you know, maybe she does go ahead and work with Patrick Morotafu or somebody no. like that, right? But Please but no. my point. No, I mean, but my point is that, like, I don't think she would seek out that kind of, you know, superstar. If we want to use that word, oh, You know there's um, probably
2: a message from Patrick in her DMs somewhere. Oh probably, yeah, oh, on,
1: on every platform, yeah. <laughs> probably, probably. Um, so yeah, I think that that's. Um, I'm also curious as to what both of y'all thought about the Ostapenko resurgence. I did not see that coming. Oh me, um, you know, and um, yeah. and it just kind of. I don't know. It's interesting because I I kind of just written her off a little bit. Like, you know, she'll be a solid top 50, top 30 player, but I don't expect her to make any more runs. But after watching her this week, I thought, oh, well, maybe she has another slam or two left in her, you know, before so I mean she's never, I don't think she'll ever be consistent enough to like get to number one in the world. Um, but I but I think she can be like a Vavrinka like player that like peaks at certain moments and you know wins a few slams here and there i don't know if you did did you feel like we learned anything about ostapenko that we didn't know this from these two weeks mm-hmm. or is it just kind of like ah, yeah this is ostapenko she <laughs> caught fire for a little while
2: it, i mean it, it's a bit of a auto actually go ahead
1: Lauren. oh yeah sorry um it, it's a really
0: interesting question because um i totally agree with you on the consistency i don't mm-hmm. think it's ever going to be there enough to be a really high ranked player but I was looking back at the results now and I'm I'm kind of shocked to see her seated at 24th I don't play I don't pay that close attention to the rankings and so I was kind of shocked to see her that high but I mean her game is so explosive like with these down the line winners and her power can just blow away anyone that with a game like that all it really takes is catching fire for a little bit and she can just mow down anyone in her path so I think from that standpoint it's not surprising to see a result like this From the consistency standpoint, it definitely is because she hadn't had a run like this in a while. Um, So I think I feel like having a Stan-esque career might be a little bit um, a little bit of a reach. But like, I could definitely see her getting another one because I mean, she was really close to beating Vika. I think um, she she didn't win more points.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
0: in the match but she only won four fewer points um she served better she had more break points um so she was not far at all away from winning that one so i think her catching fire and winning another major is far from out of the question what do you think fox
2: yeah no i mean i think you know she this kind of level does appear from her you know from time to time it's definitely not a week to week thing (laughs) or even a month to month thing it's more just you know, I think when the surface is right and the conditions are right and she has that little bit of extra time, she can be super dangerous, especially on a slow court. You know, I think it was just a reminder for me again, like how dangerous she actually is. She actually can be, you know, on any given week and any given, uh, you know, set of conditions like slow, gritty, hard courts, where which were playing slower than a lot of even clay courts. So I think it just really gives her time to just unload on a lot of returns and go down the line big and go down the line often because that that kind of tennis is really high risk and low margin. And, you know, you can only really pull that off for patches at patches. And I think that's what she, and that sometimes can be enough, you know, with level dips and helps from help from an opponent and, you know, just really feeling it, I think, and just catching lightning, you know. And, and I think that uh, that is the kind of player that she is, going to be and for the next few years until something clicks consistency wise where you know it's easy to forget i think she's only 23 or 24 so it's going to be you know it it is not out of the question that you know maybe by the time she's 29 or 30 you know something just clicks and she's you know in the game and playing playing a little bit more consistently week to week but you know she does also have a semifinal at wimbledon which is shocking i guess in 2018 and you know, and I think she also backed it up and when she won Roland Garros, she made the quarterfinals the very next Wimbledon uh, as well. So, you know, I don't know, maybe something on maybe maybe on grass it actually cannot be it ruled out either because I know she did actually win the title this year somewhere on grass. Yeah, on in East 50s. in Eastbourne,
1: right? She right. won Eastbourne or Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah.
2: you know, I mean she she is gonna be one of those those kind of players. It's very different. I don't want to compare the two, but it was. I was feeling the same thing about Nicholas Brazilovichevi as well on the men's side. Mm. It's just that little bit of extra time to where, you know, he doesn't really have. A, players like that don't really have another plan? So, like when you see them play it this way, it's kind of like this is their plan A peak level, you know, for a given set of matches or even in that same match, and you know they can have games at a time where they can just look completely untouchable. You know, power off both wings and just unplayable, really. But then they can also just have patches of you know twenty four errors in the next thirty points. Yeah, and it's going to be you know how how much do you minimize that and maximize your peak areas?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think Ostapenko is a player whose game is really unlikely to change much or at all in the next few years. But at the same time. She could win literally anywhere, and I would think like, yeah, that kind of makes sense with the game she has. So I think, yeah. like, I don't really see her adding variety, and I don't really see her cutting out the inconsistency. But if she can have those purple patches, like, it's going to be enough to beat anyone at any time. So
2: yeah, it's a little bit like when Petra Kvitova decides, okay, exactly, yeah, a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I play tennis better than anybody, yeah. right? So yeah, and I think that with Kvitova, actually, that's happened probably a few times a year. So it's probably happened four or five times. And she actually, you know, credit to her because she brings titles out of it. And she ends up winning almost 30 titles in her, in her career. And she still yeah. has more years to go. So it's, you know, it's you're definitely not going to be number one in the world with that kind of a approach. But it's definitely, you know, some players just, I guess, they just have that ability
0: yeah, I, I said Kvitova would win Wimbledon this year on our preview podcast, and then she lost <laughs> yeah. in the first round. <laughs> it's a
1: nightmare prediction. Uh, is so hard to to deal with. I I like her. If she's deep, right? Like if she, you know, especially at Wimbledon. But yeah, okay. she's a hard one to kind of hang your hat on prediction wise.
0: Sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think um, I think Ostapenko and Kvitova they have more power than Dimitrov. Um, but I think yeah. in a way when they do well, it's like, um, you know, they have so many ways to win points. Um, that's, it's rarely to never surprising. And, um, so if we want to maybe move on and talk about the year on finals a little bit, um, I know that we have, um, definitely some spots that are not locked in yet. So I guess, um, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on sort of, um, I mean, the fields we know we're going to have so far and also some players that um, you think could maybe sneak into the last few spots.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think on the men's side, if we just look at the route to Turin, there's six players that are already qualified and, you know, that's yeah. obviously Djokovic, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, uh, you know, Ruba, Beratini, and And then there's just, you know, there's two spots open. And obviously Rafa's not playing, so I'm not really going to, you know, factor him in there. But you have Casper Ruud, who's kind of, seventh position mm-hmm. and then you have her catch and then nori and then sinner and felix so realistically um, you know if these five players just kind of continue you know with steady winning matches two or three matches a week for the next uh, until, until whenever the final is it's uh you know it's probably going to be one of those five unless you know somehow i don't know dennis chapovalov at number 15 comes along and just wins mm-hmm. paris
1: yeah i mean i actually was a little more stingy with who i thought would i didn't i don't think felix is really in the running i think it's going to be really hard for him if i'm thinking about his form so i thought about rude you know her catch, nori and center as the possibilities and i think a lot of what center is going to be able to do is going to hinge on this antwerp result um Because if he picks up the 250 from Antwerp, then he's just a couple of points behind, you know, Um, so he and then um, he's playing the same tournaments as all of them for the next uh, three weeks. So I think what's exciting for me is that generally I feel like maybe one position is available and there might be two guys fighting for it. Um, towards the end of the year. Um, but this year, I think we have, you know, and, and Vans, you're right, maybe it is five folks, um, but we have four or five guys that can actually make this. And I think that makes it exciting, especially because there's not, there's only three tournaments left, you know, after, you know, after Antwerp. Um, Three weeks left to play and all of these guys are entering the same tournaments, it looks like. So I went through to which, you know what? I'm just gonna give an idea to someone. If someone wants to make an app that shows where everyone is playing, because I just I had to do a lot of like searching. So I was like, okay, well, where's Hubie playing? Where's you know, and it's it like I felt like if there was a centralized place to just look up like. you know the player's schedule and maybe there is and i just don't know it's really funny (laughs) you
2: bring that up actually because i came across something you know i'm going to say a few months back and it was the darts there's this website for darts rankings and that website has like entry lists for tennis oh it does (laughs) okay who's playing like what event and like you know what the potential field is and like what the cutoff for the ranking is like for oh, so that would play. be
1: great. Where, what is that? So, so, so if you could share, so it with actually, me, you so. know,
2: I will definitely share that with you. But it's yeah, you know, it's like if you go to www.dartsranking.com okay. slash tennis then okay. you'll, you'll get. It's only for the ATP, unfortunately. I could you know I couldn't find the WTA, but yeah, you know, but that's really helpful. Uh, the entries and projected seedings for the upcoming ATP tournaments. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you're right. I think it really, I you know, I don't see Felix making it this year. You know, personally. But, you know, Felix and Sinner are kind of in an interesting position where they're, like, still in the race for Milan. So it's kind of interesting, like, are they going to play that tournament as well? Which doesn't really give them any ranking points. But there is some prestige and prize money and, you know, some experience for Sinner, I guess. It's in Italy and his hometown. He's won the event in 2019 where he beat Diminor in the final. And then for Felix, he's never played the event before. And he's still 21 and under. So my yeah.
1: i don't know my sense is he won't bother with it because there's nothing to really win right like me right. anything anything other than him winning it would would not be good right you know yeah. it would be like okay another tournament you didn't win where you know <laughs> you were you were you were favored right um <laughs> i mean i think that narrative would continue um yeah. and then i don't necessarily think that a win does a lot for him at this stage in his career um I agree. And I don't get a sense, and I, I don't get a sense he's trying that desperately to make the the year-end either, but I couldn't find his entry list, so I don't know if he's playing all three. Um, but I know that um, all of them, Sinner, Nori, hercatch and Rude are playing Vienna, Paris, and Stockholm. And so just the fact that Center has entered into Stockholm, obviously he can always withdraw, makes me think he's not serious about uh, Milan, you know, like I think he, because it it would be there the same week. And so, you know, if he's, if he's going to play Stockholm, he's not going to be able to play Milan. Um, I um, suspect
2: that uh, Felix is also in Vienna. Uh, He's going to be the sixth seed, I think, as it stands. And then I think, uh, yeah, he's also playing Stockholm as well. Well, Maybe he's
1: making the last minute run himself. Okay, so... (laughs) So they're all basically playing those three events and, and then center has added Antwerp maybe to try to make up some of the points that he has. Um, So I think it is interesting. I mean, um, I'm, I definitely don't think that given now that we know what the semifinal field is in Antwerp, that that's a given for him. Um, He could lose to Lloyd Harris. He could lose in the final to either Brooksby or Diego. So But I think if he wins it, I think it changes the conversation a little bit because then he really is really in the running because he gets those 250 points. Um, um, Now, whether he can back that up week to week, which is what's going to be necessary. But I but I think for me, what's exciting is that we have these four slash five guys competing for these two spots and i think it's probably going to come down to that last week um i think her check her catch said that he would decide like he's entered into stockholm but that he might pull out if if the race isn't in play like either he's right. already qualified or he's too far out mm-hmm. to qualify he wouldn't play Stockholm as, as but, it stands
2: right now i think he would be kind of that eighth guy okay mm-hmm. uh, to yeah. qualify, but then you know, it's interesting because we haven't really seen Casper Ruud what he can do on an indoor hard court yet. Obviously, we just know the one sample size we have is the match matchup against Opelka at the Labor Cup, which is an, yeah. You know, do you,
1: um, do y'all know about the speed of these indoor hard courts? Um, I, I
0: have no idea. Um,
2: I think I've heard from people that they're medium paced, low bouncing. Uh, definitely the low bouncing and then the speed I think just varies across uh, year to year and, you know, I guess how much maintenance. And I think it also goes upon the balls they're, they're using. I think sometimes, you know, sometimes surfaces can be made to look faster if the balls are a little faster, but the surface is slow. I think it's, it becomes really tough when you have slow balls and slow courts mm-hmm. or really mm-hmm. fast and really, I, I like to see it kind of more mixed up. It's not so much, I think, the, the surface itself it's also like the combination of the two and then just how it plays in day versus night but the good thing is in indoors we don't really have to worry about those other variables like the sun the wind and things uh things like that like i know antwerp this week was feeling pretty medium uh and you know i guess schwartzman and uh, murray made it seem like it was really slow <laughs> match match just for the kind of attritional rallies they're having and then you know you're you're also looking at you know it is kind of skidding a little bit through and it is easy to kind of When some three points on your first serve, especially when Diego Schwartzman is losing like seven points on a serve, you know, the whole match, I guess it's, it's kind of somewhere in between, I would say, between the two, but. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of think, you know, um, I mean, we don't have anything but recency, like, I don't know enough about how Rude plays indoors. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like we have a small sample size where her catch having won a tournament indoors right before he came to San Diego, right? Right, um, in,
2: in Mets. So I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he wanted Mets, and then, you know, center wanted Sofia. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously. Different field, but you know, seems to have a knack for playing indoors in Europe in the fall, right? <laughs> um, um, and um, and I don't know enough about uh, Felix's or um, or Nori sort of, you know, uh, play indoors. So I think it. Uh, I, I think there's enough variables. There there are four, very four or five different kinds of players too. Right. Um, so I think it's just going to be really exciting and interesting to see. Um, and I think it's great. And I wish the ATP kind of pumped up that race a bit more because it's, it's, it feels like one of the few years where there are multiple open spots and there are yeah. multiple people who could win those spots. And some of these people are your next gen and your next next gen. So it seems to me a perfect opportunity to promote the tour. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and I, I think
2: I... that's why it was also interesting to follow Indian those a little, little bit at the end mm-hmm. because you're suddenly like, wow, Cameron Norrie is in the next and you know that that was a new kind of addition to this being this race being heated up a little bit yeah. because i don't think you know he was in the conversation before indian wells at all so yeah now that he's there he's actually occupying that ninth spot so he could well do that as well but we don't have a big sample size like kind of how he plays in these indoor conditions so it's going to be tough to gauge
0: yeah, Xavier, I totally agree with you that this race to see who qualifies is exciting. And I think I have to say, I might be more excited to see who qualifies than I am for the tournament itself. Because I think the idea of, I mean, as great as these players are, I i just don't see them giving Djokovic or Medvedev any trouble. And so the idea of, um, you know, Ruth losing two and two to Djokovic on one of these low bouncing hard courts is not that appealing to me. And the idea of, um, you know, no Nadal there, no team there. I feel like um, maybe I'm not giving it enough of a chance, but I feel like I kind of know it's not going to be as good as last year. Um, so I think I think it's going to be great to see who qualifies. But I think once we have the field, I'm not too optimistic about how good the matches are going to be.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I do think I one feel, difference. Oh, sorry.
2: No, no, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say I feel slightly different in the sense that if you know, for example, if Hubert Hercatch qualifies, you now we have seen a big sample size in terms of. A little bit more from him, just what he can do against top players, and I do think with his kind of the game, with the way he kind of redirects and his big serve and likes to come forward, I do think he can give some guys some, some trouble, especially your, you know, 60 pluses of the world or your, you know, even a Medvedev. He beat at Wimbledon on, you know, same, you know, not the same kind, but still low bouncing, and he's played Djokovic tough at Wimbledon in the past, even though that was in 2019, and you know, he's he's played well against all these guys, and he's. Beaten Rublev, he's you know been tough for Berrettini in the past, so I kind of feel like he would be a he would be kind of an interesting seventh guy. That eighth guy, I think, is a little bit more of a more of a. You kind of just hope they don't go zero three in that sense. A bit like how Schwartzman did, you know, last year. No, no offense to him, obviously he's a terrific player. You can never say anything bad about Diego, but uh, you know, just in terms of being super competitive, and unless it's and then you also have situations where there's a dead rubber and play. And so that, you know, doesn't really that match doesn't really mean much to the whole tournament. But it kind of just, you know, maybe two hundred more ranking points, a little more, you know, prize money, maybe, you know, some confidence. But yeah, I was just gonna just just gonna mention, uh, you know, her catch is somebody who could be kind of yeah.
1: I I agree with you there. I I definitely think that her catch could make things interesting. Um. I, I think it'll be interesting to see how Djokovic approaches the tournament, you know, because I mean he will be well rested. And generally a well-rested Novak is a winning Novak. Um, you know. Um <laughs> and so, you know, I um but I I I wonder if he has the quite the the motivation to win it again, you know, especially yeah, we'll if well. I think especially if the number one has kind of already been ranked you know, kind of
2: wrapped up, yeah.
1: wrapped up for the year, you know, like, is, 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 the, is the motivation really still the same for him? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. um, I I do think it could be interesting if those, I'm calling them the little three, but if the little three really show up, you know, um, right. uh, there, you know, if that combination of Tsitsipas and Medvedev and uh, our our best German friend, um, you know, all show up and play their best tennis, and then you have a Novak who's well rested. Um, I think it could be, and then a uh, catch, who could be a bit of a wild card, you know. Um, I think it could be really, really. It could be really interesting. But I agree with you, Owen. There's a potential for a lot of dud matches is, and a lot of yeah. a lot of dud matchups, right? That's why um, I think
2: the groups are going to be key. You know, how do they? Oh yeah how do they mix up the group so that it's, we don't get those dead matches. So where yeah, you, know, so... you don't have, you know, rude and Djokovic playing each other or you don't have, you know, maybe I don't know, you know, you don't want to throw anybody under the bus <laughs> quite yet, but it's, you
1: know, no, I, I would like to ask you guys, um, who do you think that would most, so let's, let's say if, whether we want to take it out of a sample size of four or five, but who do you think would most benefit? Mm as a long-term career for you know as something that might you know from being in the final eight you know like who do you think like this would maybe do something for them even if they don't do well but just being there and kind of being amongst the elite like would that do something to kind of propel them for next year or do you think it makes no difference one way or the other at this point
0: that's a great question i think it actually does make a difference um i think the biggest thing is going to be experience. Like, I don't think ranking points are much of a factor here because I think um, most of the guys who will qualify in the last few spots probably will not win matches. But I think someone like OJ Eliasim would benefit greatly from getting, like, three matches against top five players or something like that. Because um, at his level, like, where he is right now, I think that's sort of what he needs to take the next step. Like, he's made a bunch of quarterfinals at majors. Um, He's made a semi. But... He kind of lost handily to Medvedev when he was there. And so I think what he needs now is a bunch more matches like that. And he can slowly work his way up the ladder because the next step is winning one of those matches. Um, I think before you win it, you have to lose handily and then you have to get close and still lose. And then after that, maybe you have all the experience to win. Like I think um, Shapovalov's lost to Djokovic at Wimbledon. I think that tore him apart. I think it was totally painful, but I also think it was really necessary in his development. Like I think you need a match like that where you play well enough to win, maybe he didn't play quite well enough to win, but you play really well and you still lose, and you feel the pain from that, and then you realize, okay, here's what I need to do differently for next time. And I feel like OJ Ali's hasn't really had that yet, um, and that the U.S. Open semifinal wasn't enough of a lesson in that respect. So I think someone like him, someone like Rude, and Nori, I guess, I feel like all of those guys could really benefit from just getting a lot of experience all at the same time.
2: Yeah, I think that that's a great point, actually, just about getting the experience and just how much it would help just more of a barometer against the top guys. Uh, you know, I think, you know, Felix is a good example because he's already been on the tour for a couple of years and he's kind of made the next step, but he hasn't quite, you know, he's still yet to win a title and he's still yet to, you know, really break through and have that really big win in a major, even though he did get to the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, he did beat our German friend there and he did get to the semis and he he came close against Medvedev to winning a set. I think there's still a little bit more kind of just something missing that he needs to unlock there. And then, so if he were to get there and get more matches against the top guys, that would be great. And I'll probably use that same explanation for Sinner because he's another guy who is, you know, who's uh, played, you know, Djokovic once now, and he's played Rafa two or three times. They played in Rome, they played in Roland Garros, and both their Roland Garros matches, he served for the first set against Rafa and couldn't quite put him away. But he had that really valuable experience of already having played Rafa twice in Roland Garros in best of five sets. And, uh, you know, he's already played, uh, you know, the likes of Tsitsipas and, you know, Medvedev once and the other guys once or twice. So I think for him and then also just you know showing that he can do it at every level now because he's you know just i think that's very important in terms of progression on the tour just kind of building that long term goals for for the player and i think that was sneakily one of his goals i think in the beginning of the year to break into the top 10 and maybe maybe have a chance and just it being in italy i think it would be really cool for the event itself to have two italians uh, you know present uh and you know he's it would just be great also, if he could, you no, know, not necessarily win the thing, but just win a couple of matches, uh, you know, just because, you know, so he can kind of show like, oh, you know, that it kind of gives a little bit more credibility to the next-gen event as well because you, you win that and then you go move on. Like what Sitsipas did in 2018 and then 2019, he won the whole thing. So he went from Milan to, you know, NITO ADB Finals winner. And so, you know, and I think for Sinner, you know, his baseline game and his ball striking is always – and the the power that he has off both wings is always evident. But I think it's. But I think uh, sometimes he misses a bit too much from the ground, and his serve is the main area oh, of his the game <laughs> that <most> needs improvement. <laughs> the you service. know, he's, he's uh shown some small improvements so far in terms <laughs> of like he's changed his stance. He's uh, gone to the platform stance. He used to have a pinpoint stance before, and he's but he's still not getting many cheap points with it, and it's not really doing much for him other than starting the point. And so I think uh, you know on this yeah. on these indoor courts again, especially against Djokovic and Medvedev, you really need uh, a big weapon like that. And you know, so just the more matches he gets against them, and just the better idea of what he has to kind of work on long term with his coach Ricardo Piatti. Yeah, so yeah, that would kind of be my pick.
0: Yeah, I, I think the only thing I would add to that is also if any of these guys happen to make it out of the group stages, I think this yeah. tournament could help them a lot physically. And because um, since you're playing on back-to-back days, I think, um, even though it's best of three, it's really tough physically. So I think that could help prepare them for the best of five where they haven't had as much experience.
2: Right. And then I think Xavier, you hit on it well. I think a lot of it depends on Djokovic and where his motivation is at this time of the year, because obviously he's won this event five times, but he hasn't won it since 2015. And he's lost a couple of close matches in the um, semifinal stage, or lost two matches against team, you know, in the third set tiebreaker. Yeah. And he was up in both of those four loves four one. And, really? and so a little bit of a hit to his system there. And he lost his number one ranking in 2019 when he didn't even get out of the group stage because it was difficult with team and then Federer. And then you have, kind of, you know, and I think just if he's down and down in the match, you know, is he going to have that same kind of motivation to really come back and grit and fight his way out of it? Because, you know, like he would, for example, and if it was the Australian Open final, you know, I, oh, I don't think he's at the absolutely. same point in his career. You will already kind of see that with the way you know he skipped five Masters one thousand this year. He's really pacing himself <laughs> and he's going for that record of being getting the most majors, and I think yeah. that's his ultimate priority. And it should be, you know, I don't blame him because he's won, he's got the most weeks as, num- as number one. He'll probably have this one locked up with a few matches in Paris and then he, you know, he doesn't have to worry about the number one spot or winning the ATP finals is not that as important to him at this stage of his career. I would think. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I do think that, you know, obviously we don't know the inner minds of any of these players, but I do think that his motivation uh, will be key to kind of thinking about what the final outcome of that will be. Like if he willing to really fight and grit out, if he gets down, right. you know, um, um, in a match, you know, because right. um, I mean,
2: last year when he played Medvedev, he wasn't able oh, to do that.
1: Yeah. So he, and I think yeah. against Federer the year
0: before that as well, he was exactly. not fully yeah. there. So,
2: so yeah. yeah, I think that's where it kind of depends on. And I guess, well, we didn't hit on the women's side, um, you know, yeah. but on the women's side, there's, I think Maria Sakkari just qualified today. So that's, that's yeah. really great for her. She made a couple of semifinals and at the majors and she hasn't won a title yet, <laughs> but she's made a lot of big runs and beaten a lot of top 10 and top 20 players. So I think that's, that's really well done for her, I'd say. And then, uh, you know, I think the big question mark is will Ash Barty play the event? Yeah,
1: because, I actually you know, don't like think that's much of a question mark. I don't think she's going to lift, will leave Australia, Australia and, you and don't think so? subject, and subject herself to another two week quarantine when she comes back. I just, right. that's- I just, I don't see that. And, and maybe if it were in Asia and it wasn't such a long flight and, you know she could kind of pop over and pop back you know like like maybe but I have a hard time imagining especially and I think if it were a thing where she could do that and then springboard like let's say if the French Open were the first major of the year she could kind of springboard that into the next year but it's like leave quarantine go to Mexico for a week come back into quarantine like I don't I don't see that um is is Australia qualified for the Billie Jean Cup or King Cup or no? Are they are they playing in it or not? I,
0: I'm um, not sure, honestly.
1: Okay, yeah. They, um,
2: I don't know actually if they're qualified or not. That's a good question.
1: Okay, I'm gonna assume no because she normally doesn't turn down a chance to represent Australia. But I was I was just sort of saying that if that's in play, maybe she will leave quarantine because she's gonna have to mm-hmm. do that to go to the Billie Jean King Cup anyway. So she might just be like, well, if I'm gonna leave to go do that, then I might as well leave to play Guadalajara. But um, I'm just assuming she's not going. Um, And do we know whether, because I'm looking at a Wikipedia page, but I'm not sure this is accurate because I know that is officially qualified, but they're also claiming Sfiontech and Muguruza have as well. And is that actually true or is this a really um, bad Wikipedia it, page?
0: It should <laughs> be for Sfiontech because she's above Sakari in the um, in the live rankings, I think. I'm the, not sure uh, about in the, her,
2: in the race, you know, if I go to the race app, you know, I see that mm-hmm. Sakari is the fifth person to qualify and then Sfiontech oh, okay. is right behind her.
1: Okay, uh, okay.
2: But you know how they keep on they keep on changing like sort of what the cut is in terms of points. And so I think Shiontek is really, really close. Like it would be a miracle if she doesn't qualify. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. I actually I, with, um, and, and actually same with Garby, probably, even though she yeah. just goes today. I think she'll just have to wait a little bit because it also depends on uh what Contavate does this week, I think in Moscow. Yeah. yeah uh, because yeah. She, she beat Garby pretty badly 6161 today in 48 minutes. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah and then and then it's going to be interesting to see who out of jabor bedosa who's now in the eighth position um and yeah, obviously she's going i think are probably going to qualify um and then yeah i think everybody is not playing so then there's two spots left and probably yeah
1: four. yeah i mean um i'm looking at the numbers so they're really bunched close together um you know even Svitolina is still potentially in the conversation. Um, really? So I, I, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Although you know, she's kind of far back. Actually, now that I'm looking at it, it would be um, pretty
2: tough for her.
1: Yeah. yeah, it would be pretty tough for her now that I'm looking at. It. I think it's gonna basically be between, I guess, two open slots between Bedosa Javore, and Kontaveit. Yeah. Um. Did Did a play in Moscow this week? For some reason, I just don't feel like I've seen her name.
2: Um, I think she did and she lost today. She, she lost. lost to Von okay. I, she lost okay. to Vandrusova. I mean, oh yeah, 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 42. yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the quarters. Yeah.
1: Gosh, Vondrusiva just has <laughs> <laughs> she's playing a spoiler for a lot of people's years. It's just yeah. <laughs> um good good for her though. I'm yeah. Oh hey, um,
0: so this just popped up on Twitter. Uh Barty's not playing again in twenty twenty-one. So okay. okay, yeah, so that was pretty okay.
2: I was just waiting for the for the confirmation. That was pretty Okay. You know, yeah, much. I
0: mean it's um it's not shocking. I mean she's almost yeah. um I think she's almost two thousand points clear of the number two in terms yeah, of points. Yeah, she is. So yeah,
2: I think you know Sabalenka missing Indian Wells was a big actually uh, uh yeah. you know it gave her a little bit more of a buffer than she yeah. probably thought of before. Yeah, and, and also and... Sabalenka lost today. So I mean she'd pretty much have to win the ATP finals and then she'd be close to get it. Yeah. to number one for the next year but i think it's pretty secure
0: yeah, yeah. I, I mean and even ranking in quarantine aside the australian open has always been the big one for Barty. like you can tell that's that's probably the tournament she would want to win if she could win right. anything so i think prioritizing that um the start yeah. of next year makes a lot of quarantine. sense yeah
1: no, no, definitely. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting, right, between Bedosa, Jabur and apparently Contefate is coming on strong. So, you know, I think it'll be those three for those final two positions is what I'm thinking.
0: Yeah, and unlike the ATP side, I feel like those three could definitely mix it up with those who have already qualified. Like, I would not be shocked at all to see any of them get multiple wins, whereas um, I think Rude, it would be tough for me to see him beating yeah more, more yeah than one no no so. no
1: I I don't see that at all um I'm curious because we haven't seen these conditions in Guadalajara so I've been yeah, told okay. that it's a, uh, it's uh it's very high altitude so the ball flies right but then they're using are they using a heavy ball or a light ball I'm I'm still confused as to Not, what kind of
2: not yet clear on the, okay, totally clear on the conditions. Yeah. I mean,
0: I, I I just hope it's fast. I just hope both of them are fast because at this point in yeah. the year, if it's slow, we're going to get injuries or bad matches or retirements. And
2: I hope so too. Uh, I think I it mean, is on an altitude. And yeah, I'm, I'm, so that
0: that is encouraging. But yeah, it's like it seems like putting fast courts at the end of the year would be the most obvious thing, and yet.
1: Yeah. so and yet they seem not to do it, right? right Especially right. on the WTA side. WTA finals courts. in
0: 2019. Oh my god. Oh yeah. my
1: gosh. Oh my gosh. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's hope that they make the courts and conditions fast so we don't have injuries, we don't have retirements, we don't have, you know, bad matches. Um yeah. and um yeah, but I'm I, I I think that unlike the ATP side, there's potentially quite a bit of intrigue, you know, for the WTA. I do mm-hmm. think that the conditions being sort of dissimilar from what people normally play could throw a little wrench in there and mm-hmm. maybe affect the quality of the matches, but I'm expecting like a really competitive matches. I mean, these women are all very closely matched, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited too. Um, maybe, maybe before we wrap off, I was wondering if I could get both of your thoughts on um, the year end finals format um, because I've been thinking about them for the last few days. And the more I think about it, the more I'm asking myself, how does it make any sense to have a completely different format in this tournament? Like, I know you have eight person fields, but not single elimination, like playing multiple matches on consecutive days. It's it's just so different from everything else earlier in the year. And more points are at stake here and more prize money than in many other tournaments. Um, So I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on that.
1: Um, I mean, I, I like the round robin format, just because I like the idea of like, if you lose, you can still have some kind of redemption. Um, and, and I kind of like that. I do remember seeing old school 70s WTA draws that were round robin. Um, you know, so and I don't know if that was the case on the men's side or not, I, I haven't seen any old draws. Um, so I think it was more of a format at earlier stages in, in, in tennis. Um, but I, I, I like the idea of a, of a round Robin. Um, I think because you potentially now this is let's potentially get some really good matchups every day. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think that they would have a hard time if they're trying to sort of sell the quote unquote stars of the game. If like after the first day, you know, half of them, half of them, half of them are gone, right? Um, um, so you know, so I think there's a a practicality to that choice, I imagine, as well, because it kind of keeps the intrigue a a little longer. Um, um, I I, I think my I, I wonder if they would expand the field if they wanted to do a single elimination. I don't know, but I I like the idea of it if it's gonna stay top eight of remaining round robin. Um, Yeah. But I, I, I'm curious as to, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm. No, 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 (laughs) no. It's completely fair.
2: No, no. Yeah, totally. I actually quite like it as well. I like that. It's a different kind of a wrinkle. It throws a little bit of a wrinkle into things that you could have somebody, you know, who's gone one and two in round robin, but could still get out of their group. I think that's, that's, that's actually, that's very rarely happened, but you know, you, there's a little bit more match that goes into it a little bit more. You have to count the sets and games. And actually, I think a, a plus of the format is that it forces you to win every game and every match, like every game actually counts. And, you know, you know that's not the case for most of the events you play on the tour. And also you get a little bit more of a redemption to where, you know, a lot of the times, actually, I, I think I once I did the stats on this, but like a lot of the times if the player who beat, uh let's say for example, I don't know, it's Djokovic and Medvedev and Medvedev beat Djokovic in the round robin the, and it met in the final, the result was actually flipped. So it's kind of cool to see because you can learn from the tactics and you can learn from the from the match that you just played the guy, you know, four days ago. So I think that's a little bit more of a more of a plus. Um and then also, yeah, I kind of just like how it's you have only two matches per day, and it's uh, you know, all the attention is just on just those two matchups. And um, it's spread across. I I do think we've had a little, some of of the finals, like the finals is like the last match of the year. And Mm -hmm. so I do think in some cases we've had some duds uh, in the final match of the year. And I think that um, it would be nice if we had one more best of five set match somewhere in the year, apart from the majors. And I've always kind of thought, even though it's at the very end of the year and I understand players are worn out and very tired physically. And maybe if they had one extra day in between the semis and the finals, you know, maybe we could throw in a best-of-five-set match to finish it off because I think that could really spice things up as far as the final round is concerned. And also, it would give some of the younger guys a good opportunity for more best-of-five-set matches throughout the year because obviously before we used to have some Davis Cup ties and matches and so there used to be some more five-set experience there. But now that that format is totally gone and, you know it being the final match of the year. I do, I, I would like to see that. And that's true for the women's side as well, you know, on the women's side in the eighties and nineties for about 15 years in a row, the WTA finals final was always best of five sets. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm curious, obviously a lot of it depends on the players on the WTA side, whether or not they would want it. I know Serena has been very open about it and said that she would, she wouldn't mind playing five sets because, you know, she backs herself even in five sets. So I think, It'd be pretty cool to see that thrown in the in the final. I don't know yeah. if that's a popular opinion,
0: but no, so um so here's a proposal I had. And um I'm not sure how well this will go over since it would get rid of the round robin form. And just Here one more
2: go. thing I forgot to oh, add yeah, is yeah. that you know it would be kind of cool if they switched from a round robin if there were like 16 players because you know uh-huh. on the wta side they do also have like the wta elite trophy event which is like kind of yeah. the 8 to 16 <laughs> kind of ranked players and then they they kind of win it and it's like oh ash party won that in 2018 and now mm. she's gonna win you know it's a little bit like milan but not quite the same just because that's based on rankings but if they had like 16s then you could actually probably do like a you know proper draw and you could also have like you know a set system so like where one plays number eight or like two plays yes. number seven or like three plays five i think it'd be pretty cool to have that they have that in other sports where it's like yeah pretty drafted according to the teams and seedings and so you could actually have like set matchups instead that, of it being
0: random like one yeah that, six. That, that's actually like, what i was thinking what i was going to say was um and you could you could do this with 16 as well but um yeah it was a single elimination one versus eight two versus seven um days often between every matches a uh, whole thing is best of five um, oh
1: wow! Okay. Oh, okay. Two th-
2: weeks.
0: Yeah. And- yeah. Sure. And, and so I feel like if you had that, even if you only had an eight-person draw, you would be getting enough tennis that even if you lost in the first round in straight sets, you would. Well, I mean that's only three sets, but um, you, you would get a fair amount of tennis. And I think the event mm. would produce a lot of tennis. And I feel like even if you had a nightmare situation where someone played three five-set matches, um, you would have days off in between. Um, I mean you could even have multiple <laughs> days off. Um if you had a lot of time at your disposal. So, um, yeah, what would your thoughts be on that? Yeah,
1: I, I, I don't, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting to experiment with these these formats. Um, you know, I I mean, I remember the days of Madison Square Garden and the the five set you know matches for both the men's and then because both of them i think were in madison yeah. square garden at one point and the five set matches and i mm-hmm. there's that famous wasn't it a, was it a graf sellis one or a sellis sabatini Seles-Sabatini, uh, i think it was over yeah, four it was, hours yeah 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 it was, just a, it was a great match though I, I remember it very well and being pained by um, um, you know by just having to go through that experience but um but I think that, yeah, so I'm I'm I would be very open with experimenting. I would imagine the players themselves are are not excited by that. Although I think that I imagine that like the the um I think the players would maybe be open if they got a day off to playing a five set final, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I also don't always think that five set oops, sorry. Um, I also don't think that five set matches are always good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, sometimes, so I think it's, it's, it can be a wild card, right? Like, you know, I don't know if you want, I, I mean, I feel like you could get a drubbing, you know, final between two people in over five sets, just as you can get it over two, over three. So I don't know. I like, I like the idea of trying to minimize the wear and tear on the players at the end of the year um i might concede to a non um you know a five set final i also think it might be interesting um to not feed right and just like just create chaos like all eight players just go in if you did a single elimination no seeding, and just i like that
0: a lot you know and oh, and nice.
1: just And just like we've we decided, these are the top eight guys in the world. So if number one has to play number two in the first round, so be it. Right. Um, That'd be. I think it could be. I think it could be interesting in that way too to kind of play with that format. Um, I also could see something in the future if tennis could kind of get its act together of bringing the WTA and ATP finals to the same space and having them together. Um, do mixed
0: doubles with that. But
1: and then you and, could yeah. do you could have a mixed doubles uh portion that would just be kind of I think fun for the fans. I've I've always I told you I have this dream of a two-week long like mixed double slam with like the you know with the with the top men's and top women's players and with the draft. Right, like with a with a lottery draft where like Novak Djokovic gets to choose who his partner is, and oh or you know some, so cool. and then it would be this whole like, does he go with like another Serbian, or does he pick Serena, or does yeah. he go with Ash Barty so that he can have the best, you know, and then maybe go back and forth, and then they have Sabalenka choose her partner next, yeah. and, <laughs> and like you know, come on go. a stage
0: and give them a microphone, and it would yeah, be a huge no, event, yeah. People I think would love
1: it would that. be so cool. Oh, that'd be know? amazing. And then maybe you could rotate the surface every year, you know, um, maybe they could even do it every two years. Like it doesn't have to be every year to be interesting. And, 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 but I would, I would love something like that. So I'm all, I I say all that just to say that I'm all for taking up these formats and, and trying something new and look, if it doesn't work, you can just change it back the next year. Like it's not.
2: Yeah, I mean it's the same thing with the other team events that we have because we have three team events and they're all just, you know, they're dis- disjointed and different parts of the year, different incentives and it's it's tough to kind of for tennis to just come together, sit on a table, you know, maybe set aside some of their, you know, own differences and just work for the better of the sport. It's really tough to just put all of that revenue together and all of that all those personal, your slice of the pie, and just it'd be better if we just expanded the pie, and we just kind of all just agreed, like just open to shaking things up a little bit more. Now that we're in the 2020s, it's it's pretty. It'd be pretty cool to see those new innovations.
0: Yes, I, I think what I've learned from this is we need to get Xavier a position on the on the ATP yeah, Commissioner's Board because he is more <laughs> clearly more open to new ideas than anyone who is currently there. Yes.
1: I, I mean, I I do think that whatever the sport can do to be more fan friendly and do things that are interesting, you know, um, for the fans, short of like encore coaching, um, you know, although I think there's, I, I'm a traditionalist with that, but I think there's a way that that could be done that even would satisfy me as a traditionalist. Um but um, yeah, I, I think whatever we can do to be more fan friendly, and I think there there are these really interesting things that that could be done. You know, um, um, yeah, I, um, I I wonder also just really quickly. I know we've been talking for a while, but I want to ask you both what you think about the one and a half week long master series with the ninety eight draws and whether and I don't know if you'd ask the lower ranked players, but would you rather like those be one week draws and then some 500s added for, for the lower ranked players to the schedule, or is just being in Indian Wells with that 98 player draw, like a better thing. I I've gone back and forth with that. I think this was my first year that I kind of watched Indian Wells. and thought, Oh, this feels like it's dragging a bit. Like I'm enjoying the tennis, but you know, the staggering and the days off in between. Um, I, I just I thought that was interesting. I thought mm, I feel like this could have been wrapped up in a week, you know, um, sometimes, but um so very interesting
2: discussion point because you know obviously now that in 2023 when the ATP calendar it released its new um, it released its new business plan and they said that you know all the masters would be two weeks and that they'd have some 250s potentially in the second week for those players who lose. But I kind of agree. Like, I was watching Madrid earlier this year. It's not even Indian Wells. And it's just, it's so hard to get the women and the men to kind of play on the same days and have their schedule be like one day off because they only have one day off kind of in the early rounds. And then by the time you get to the quarters, you're playing back to back to back. So it's very confusing if you're a fan and you're trying to get access, you know, you're trying to get both ATP slash WTA coverage in the end of the week because. It's like on Friday at Indian Wells, for example, they had two men's quarterfinals, the last two men's quarterfinals, and they had two WTA semifinals, but the women had Saturday off and the men didn't. So they were playing quarters, some were playing quarters, semis, finals, and then others were playing semis and then a day off and then a final. So it was like, it was confusing because it was like men, the women were always one round ahead of the men. And then they would all play the final at the same time. So it was like, it's very difficult to kind of figure that out, especially also, if you know, we don't have one streaming platform where ATP and WTA, apart from Tennis Channel, and we don't have one app, which is wild that we still like, it took yeah. us so long and we still don't, you know, now that that app oh, is on. And it's just, it's difficult to follow as as a, for us fans, let alone casual fans that I can't even imagine how difficult it must be to get into the sport. But, um, you know, all that aside, I do think it would help to grow the product i think there's pros and cons to it because i think there are very strong 250s and 500 events that are doing so well on their own that they're coming back every year and they've got great history and they've got great uh you know even though they're 250s they always have great fields for example and, you know i expect san diego would be one of those in the future i expect you know some of the events in north america i expect like you know even doha for example which is always gets a pretty strong field or even some of the clay court 250s uh, you know, if we're putting those in the second week, and let's say players, you know, even the top players, top stars, they have contracts with those tournaments uh, because, like, you know, they made a deal with them, you know, five or 10 years ago, or they're, they need that, and they're still playing in the two week masters and they're going deep in that, you know, to then go and play that the next week, it's kind of a big ask. And so you're going to get these fields, you're going to get these even for 250s and 500s, not so great fields. And it's just going to, you're going to just going to have another, two or three sets of events going on at the same time as the two week masters, it's going to be really, really difficult to follow. And uh, you know, and, or it could also grow these masters events. It could give players a day off in between. It's, it's kind of a, you know, until I really see it happen for a whole stretch, even like a clay court season or a few weeks in a row, I can't really decide It's So I'm just keep going back and forth just like you.
0: Yeah. I, I don't have much to add to that, except, um, I don't really love the buys with the 96 person draws. I think um yeah, we could do without those, have everyone play the same number of matches to win the tournament. Um so I think, you know, like I'm fine with the way it is. Um the buys don't bother me that much, but um I think I'd be open to a change
1: as well. Yeah, and I just I wanted think- to um, add one last thing about that. I'm yeah. in agreement with everything, and I worry about what happens because there's a way that, like, when a 250 is not under the shadow of a slam or a Masters 1000, it gives that lower ranked player a chance to shine. We, I mean, that's where I've learned about some of the young, the lower ranked and younger players who are up and coming because I'm just watching a 250 event, and I feel like if it's in the shadow of Madrid. You know, then are we really going to be paying attention to an up and coming, let's say, center who's in a 250, while Rafa and Novak are playing the final weekend of, you know, of a of a yeah. Masters 1000? I just feel like it creates more of this bifurcation um, between the top players and those who aren't. So that that concerns me, but I, I'm open to yep. seeing what that what that looks like and I'll just say one last thing is that it was much easier to see tennis on TV. When I started off with this, you know, when I started off becoming a fan because it was on, you know, free to air television um, and it was on ESPN in a very different way than it, than it is on ESPN. Now it was much more central to ESPN's programming. Um, And I'll just add that I do think that the thing that tennis should probably do is, maybe come together and create their own network that really yes. that really just like that's where all the tournaments are you know yeah. and 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 you know I'm I'm okay if there's certain tv agreements for the four slams you know but um but just a place where we can go and see everything because I feel like even Tennis Channel still doesn't quite do enough and I I think that That's one way, once again, to grow the sport and make it more fan friendly. So I just want to add my two cents there.
0: No, I'm I completely agree. Um, ATP, WTA, Tennis Channel. We know you're listening to this. Get on that because fans need this. And uh, yeah, and and I agree with you about the majors. Like I think I was going to say, like Tennis Channel doesn't even show the majors. Like if you're an entry level fan, how how are you going to know where ESPN is? Um, And and even with uh with the deals and everything i think it would be great if they could somehow get all of it in the same place um because that would would just make it so much easier so but you know tennis we we love it even though it is organized worse than so many things so
2: yeah i guess it's kind of the fun of it all not really because (laughs) you gotta
0: you gotta figure it all out yourself and you gotta
2: you know it's kind of your own little unique world where you can discover yourself and your identity and you can discover new things and it's kind of like becomes very personal to your schedule and Mm -hmm. your way of going about life but at the same time it would be great if we could open it up to more people and you know expand it because that's ultimately the goal of the sport and the marketing is to reach more people and do all that even with 250s on tennis tv they don't show the outer courts i'm just like you know I really want to see, you know, Alex DeMignore against Nakashima, but I can't watch it because it's not on court one, so yeah. it's yeah, it's, it's it's tough because there's so many matches a day that are happening that are intriguing, that are, could be the start could be the turning point for a player in their career and we're missing out because we don't have access to it so that's very yeah. frustrating as a fan. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess with that, you know, we don't want to keep you for, for too long. You've been yeah. delightful with your time with us and you've given us so much insight and you know you're welcome back on this podcast anytime and open invitation to you um as always and you know keep up the you know the great work on uh on twitter you're a great follow and also yeah. we love engaging in discussions with you and also you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book you've written? For, for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally yeah.
1: forgot about that in my intro. So first, once again, you know, thank thank you guys for um, inviting me. And I'd love to come back some later time to continue these conversations. I really enjoy um, uh, the engagement. Um, yeah, so I wrote a book on music and pop culture um, in South Africa and its connection with politics. A lot of my work is about how to take these things a lot of my research is about how to take these things that are sort of pop culture things, whether they be sports or uh, music or film or whatever, and think about their kind of social implications um, and, and political implications. Um, and so that's what that book was. It was sort of about music, pop culture and kind of redefining uh, post apartheid South Africa sort of after the apartheid period um, and, yeah, I've been happy with how it's done, uh, how well it's done. And, you know, uh, folks can probably get it free at their library. Um, but if you want to buy it, um, it's basically available on all different kinds of platforms. And if there's someone who's in a country where they don't have that kind of access, I, I'll, I'm i happy to send you a PDF of it. Um, and so because uh, for me, it's about sharing the the knowledge, not so much about selling the book, you know, Um And then, um, but I do hope to write something about tennis someday and I'm actually working on some ideas, but it might be a while before it gets published, but along the same veins of, um, thinking about sort of the implications of, of politics in relationship to this fun thing that we love called tennis.
0: Well, you you be (laughs) sure to give us a message when, um, when that's out, because we'd absolutely love to read it. And, um. And yeah, th- thank you for joining us here. Um, it's always been great to engage with you on Twitter. I think you do a great job of working around the character limit and uh, putting out great ideas anyway. And um, and talking was so much richer than that. So uh, again, yeah, like uh, come back anytime you like.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Great to have you.
2: And uh, I think our listeners will really enjoy the show and, you know, check out Xavier's book because you're missing out on some great content and great uh, interplay between social and political issues and, you know, all topics that are really important in today's world. So I'm really looking forward to reading it myself and, you know, hopefully, yeah, we'll we'll love to read the book that you hope to write or you're about to write on yeah. tennis and it'll be, it'll be wonderful.
0: So yeah. And, and we so can much. follow you on Twitter at
1: Ben PhD.
0: Nice. And we'll uh, put a link to that in the description as well. And your book. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for joining us. Yep, yeah. Thank you that. once again. So
2: long and enjoy your bagel. <laughs> 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 All
0: right. Um, so yeah, when um, I will end this recording in a sec, and then um, we'll, we'll send this off and, and it should be out in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, like, th- thank you. That was, that was a lot of fun to discuss everything.
1: No, great. Thanks. No, I really, really appreciate it. Um, And thank you, you know, once again for thinking of me and, and inviting me into your circle. It's been fun.
0: Of course. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Definitely looking forward to exchanging ideas on the, on the year end finals when those come up.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, I hope you all have a good, um, well, for some of you evening that's evening for all of us now. So good rest of your evening and a great weekend. Yeah. Same to you. Thanks again.